Amen. It's been good from my heart already today. I pray it has been for yours. I just want to do this now because I don't really think there's a better time uh, during the sermon to do it. Just a few good resources on our topic of the day on depression that I have found very helpful to me in recent years and even in preparation uh, for this sermon series. Uh, The first one that I'll recommend to you is a book called Spurgeon's Sorrows. Spurgeon's Sorrows by a a brother named Zach Eswine, a Presbyterian pastor in in St. Louis, Missouri. This is a phenomenal book. I can't even speak right now. I'm so emotional. Uh, It basically tells of Charles Spurgeon's sorrows and and struggles of his own with depression. And of course, many of you know Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. Uh, This very powerful man in the pulpit was a man who knew what it was like to experience depression and melancholy. Uh, So this book is really good. It's kind of told through many of Spurgeon's words with Zach Eswine's commentary on it. Incredibly helpful, very compassionate, very balanced treatment, I think, of the subject matter. Another book that I would recommend is a Christian classic called Spiritual Depressions, Its Causes and Cures by Martin Lloyd-Jones. I don't know that I need to comment a lot on this one, but it is just a wonderful book of good theology and an honest treatment of the fallen human condition. And then the last book I'll recommend is a book called Depression, A Stubborn Darkness by our brother Ed Welch, part of the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation in Philadelphia. Uh, so those are some good resources uh, to point you to. If you have any questions about any of these books, just holler at me after the service, and I'm happy uh, to chat with you about them. Uh, but before we go any further, uh, I know I need to pray. I trust that you do too. Um, let's go to the Lord and ask him for his help as we turn to what his word would say to us about depression. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do come to you acknowledging our brokenness and our neediness. We come to you acknowledging that many of us come to services like this and live many days of our lives in a sense of darkness, feel as though clouds are always with us and that the sun is rarely shining. And We know this is part of what it means to be a fallen human being living in a fallen world. And Lord, we're desperate. We're desperate for your help. We're desperate for the the ministry of your Holy Spirit every day, and especially now as we look to your word and what we can learn from your word about depression and this darkness of soul. We pray that you be with us now. Equip me as the preacher. Obviously, not everything that could be said about depression can be said in one sermon, and we trust that you will use what is said in all of our lives. We pray for that, and we ask you to be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, the motivation for this entire sermon series, this series we call Dealing with Darkness, we're going to be looking at four different topics over the month of December. We start today with depression. We will begin next week looking at, or resume next week looking at anxiety and fear. The third sermon of the four will be on grief and also loneliness coupled in with that. And then the last sermon will be on addiction and dependency. And so these are things, as Branton said at the beginning of the service, that really touch almost everybody, one of them at least, many in the room, myself included. I mean, your pastors are no different in this. I mean, we, in part, wanted to do this series because we know what it's like to live with many of these conditions and to deal with these things because we are no different than any other believer. We are just as fallen and we struggle And so we thought together in elders' meetings, as we always do, about the preaching calendar and what would be good. And I mentioned these ideas to Branton and Ron, and we had great unity. It was just like, hey, yes, that would be good to do uh, for our church. And, you know, in the month of December, it seemed appropriate. 
even, uh, in the Lord's timing, given the fact that a season that is supposed to be filled with light is filled with darkness for so many. And so we pray that the Lord will use this. And my aim, just so you know, in these sermons is, of course, not to say everything that could be said about these topics, but I aim to give us just a little bit of, of thought about what it's like to struggle with some of these things. We're going to get that in the testimonies like Michelle gave today. Uh, but then I hope to sort of explode some bad thinking about these topics that exist even in the church. I want us to think about what the Bible says about our fallen condition and what that means in terms of how we struggle with these issues. But then I want to try to offer hope in the darkness, real hope, not just this kind of surface level, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, follow these three steps and you'll be better next week kind of stuff. But like real, realistic hope in the midst of suffering. Uh, and we're going to think about those things and also some practical helps as well. Um, but my prayer is that it will be good for people who are suffering. It will be good for those of us who aim to be caregivers. And I pray that it will be good for our church just in terms of the culture that exists here in trying to care for fellow strugglers, right? That's what we all are. We're strugglers. And so I pray that the Lord will use this uh, in the life of our, our church. And so there will be times in these sermons that I'll comment directly to sufferers, directly to caregivers, but I would understand it all to somewhat apply to everyone. You're a sufferer, you're a caregiver, you're kind of both. And so I think all of it can be helpful to us. And just, again, truth and advertising kind of disclaimer here at the beginning I can't say everything that could be said, let alone about the topics, but even in each point of each sermon, there are so many things that I have left on the cutting board that could have been said in these sermons. But I hope that over the course of four weeks, we're going to get to come back to similar principles and similar topics in the truth of God's word and that that will be good for us. And so this kind of sermon is agonizing for me to prepare because this is what we normally do. Uh, for those of you who are with us for the first time, we're normally preaching through books of the Bible. We're taking a passage of scripture, explaining it, trying to understand it, apply it to our lives, see Christ in it, and then rejoice over what's there. That's what we're normally doing. But this is not that. This is a topical message on depression. Uh, so I nearly became depressed in trying to prepare this sermon. Um, so I don't have a text to read for us today, as I normally do. I will be refer referring and referencing various passages during the sermon. But we're going to go ahead and launch right in to point number one. Uh, this is point number one of six for today. So point one of our consideration, or it's, a, it's really a question, is this. What does depression look like? What does depression look like? Again, not an exhaustive definition, but here are some thoughts from my own experience and from the experiences of others. I think that there is a common misconception about depression that people who suffer from it are just simply sad all the time, sad and down all the time. And I think it certainly is never much less than that. There is a kind of downness and a sadness associated with depression, but it's often much more than that. Along with the depression of soul comes this absence of motivation an absence of desire or ambition or an absence of even any deep feeling whatsoever. You can't really react or respond to normal things in life the way a person normally would. It can be circumstantial, so it can be brought on by loss, by grief, a change in life circumstance like losing a job or something like that. It could be brought on by relational stress or even loneliness, a lack of relationships. It could be from chronic pain. That could bring on depression. Or... It can be absolutely and completely unrelated to any circumstance. It can happen and come upon a person with really no circumstantial explanation. 
And it's good for us to remember that as we consider these topics, no one wants to be out of the depression more than the person who is in it. And so the Christians who suffer from this most often are striving to be relieved of this condition. It's good for us to remember that in being compassionate with those fellow strugglers. And for many who struggle with depression, life, it often feels empty. It's full of mental and emotional pain. But even that pain feels meaningless in some way. It's like what, there's no point in anything that I'm going through. There's literally no purpose in my life in general and even in the pain that I'm experiencing. Many will say that their mind and their emotions feel locked, locked up, immovable even sometimes when they experience seasons of depression. For some, it is constant feelings of anguish. It's really agonizing. And for others, it's kind of a quieter thing. It's just this life feels flat and gray and cold. One person wrote this. I thought this was an incredibly poignant thing to say. They said that sometimes in depression you feel so devoid of feeling that you're afraid that if one of your own children died, you still wouldn't feel anything. In the words of Abraham Lincoln, I don't understand him to be a believer, but he is a revered man, a great leader of the United States in his day, certainly someone who is respected. He said this. He, he too was a man who battled depression. He said, I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode that I shall not be. To remain as I am, though, is impossible. I must die or be better, it appears to me. So what he's saying is that he is so depressed he is in such agony in his spirit and in his mind that he's like, I'm either going to die or I'm going to get better. There's no way to remain in this condition and survive. This is real. Many in the room, I, I was having a hard time singing those songs a, a minute ago because I'm looking around the room at the faces with tears rolling down. And faces that are, are clearly gripped by wonderful truths like Christ being our anchor and, and the refuge of weary souls. Right? There's a reason for that, because this kind of darkness of soul and spirit is common. It is common in the fallen human experience. And words really fall far short of describing it adequately and accurately. But those are a few thoughts for us in just terms of what depression looks like or feels like. But I want to move us on to our second point of consideration. And that's this. This is something we're going to come back to probably in most of, of these sermons, if not all of them. This is a foundational truth that we must hold on to and have in view. Is that sin is a state before it is an action. Sin is a state or a condition before it is an action. So I'm going to read some words to you from the 1689 London Baptist Confession on sin and the fall of man that are very good. Chapter 6, paragraph 2 of that confession reads this way. Our first parents, Adam and Eve by their sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. And we, in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. Paragraph 3 goes on to say this. They being the root, and by God's appointment standing in the room instead of all mankind. Again, that's talking about Adam and Eve. The guilt of the sin was imputed, 
and corrupt nature conveyed to all of their posterity, that's you and me, descending from them by ordinary generation. And now we, their posterity, are conceived in sin, are by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. Friend, that describes us biblically. It's what we are. We're fallen human beings. We have been born not only with the guilt of Adam, but with the corruption of Adam, with the broken, fallen nature of Adam. And in that fall came, or with that fall, came all sorts of miseries, spiritual, mental, emotional, physical misery. And we are not doing right, we are not giving just treatment to any subject like depression unless we acknowledge and start with these realities, that it is a result of the fallen human condition and the misery that accompanies it. Death and misery entered the world through Adam, and we see it everywhere. We see it everywhere in creation. We see its effects in our own bodies, do we not? Our bodies physically are not doing so well. For many of us in the room, we're comfortable enough, though, what's interesting to me is in thinking about the church, we're comfortable to talk about physical maladies. We're comfortable to talk about, oh, my body's broken, man. Breaking down, getting older, you know, whatever. We're comfortable to talk that way. But then we are very slow to admit the wreckage that exists in our minds and hearts as a result of the fall. We'll talk about the biological reality of breaking down bodies, but then the mental and emotional and spiritual struggles, we tend to just kind of not talk so much about that. I'll kind of touch on this more in a moment, and certainly will throughout the sermon series. I think that part of the reason for that is because we have bought into the lie that those kinds of struggles should not exist for the Christian, at least not for the good and faithful kind. Right? Like your body might break down on you because you can't really do anything about that. But if you're doing well spiritually, you shouldn't have mental and emotional disaster going on inside of you. Which, again, don't misunderstand me. Of course, we understand that we're changed by the Spirit of God and that we don't look like we used to. But the notion that there would be no spiritual, mental, emotional anguish in the life of a believer is not an idea that the Scripture teaches. It's just not. Many sufferers of depression, as a result of the fall, have a predisposition to struggle in these ways. Michelle is not alone in saying, I've kind of been sad most of my life. I mean, I've always had a constitution where I tend toward melancholy, right? I tend towards this kind of struggle. I trust there would be many hands in the room that would go up who are kind of like, yeah, I've always kind of struggled with that. Well, I mean, it's no excuse for any of us who do, but I mean, we often are born with predispositions and proclivities to sin because of the fall. And it's important that we keep these things in mind, never acknowledging or justify, I shouldn't say acknowledging, never justifying sin. That's not what we're trying to say. It's not like, friend, you have a predisposition to be depressed, so just go ahead and curse God and whatever. That's not what we're saying. But what that should produce is an awareness and a sensitivity in our body in our local church, to have compassion on these folks who struggle this way. To where we understand that we need to be patient in our care with them and that we should never be flippant or dismissive with respect to somebody who's struggling with depression. And so this is massively important. Like I would want you note-takers in the room to write this down. For those of you who have you know, perfect memories, just make a mental note of this. For CBC, as far as we are concerned as the pastors here, we should expect... Christians, faithful Christians with good theology, 
We should expect those kinds of Christians to struggle with depression. We should not be shocked, is what I'm saying. If a brother or sister in this church who is a faithful believer with great theology were to sit across the table from us and say, Brother, sister, I, I'm depressed. We should not be surprised. And in all of this, it's important to remember, friends, that we are dealing, if you think about the fall and how it is total, it affects every area of our existence, we're kidding ourselves if we do not acknowledge the reality that we are dealing with biological, psychological, circumstantial, and spiritual realities when we come to this, de this depression conversation. And that's going to be true for the other things that we are going to be talking about. The most fundamental issue is spiritual. We have a spiritual problem. We fell in Adam. That's where this began. And then it has manifested itself in our bodies, in our minds, in our emotions, in our psychology. So that was point number two for our consideration, this foundational truth of sin as a state, a condition, before it's even an action. We sin because we are sinners. That's all we're saying. Point three for our consideration is this. I want us to think for just a moment how the church has poorly handled and poorly thought about depression. How the church has poorly handled and poorly thought about depression. I'm going to say what I'm going to say. The way that I'm going to say it, on purpose, but I want you to understand that I'm saying this humbly as a man who doesn't have it all figured out, as one of three pastors of this church who don't have it all figured out, and as a part of a church that does not have it all figured out. So with all of those caveats there, I fear that in many ways the evangelical church, and by that I mean the conservative, Bible-believing church in America, has been... I, I don't even know what word I want to use. I want to use the word ridiculous in the way that it talks about depression and the way that it thinks about depression in many cases. It has been less than helpful. What do I mean? There's a lot that could be said, but I hope to give you the stuff that I think is sort of higher level. Just an example of what I'm talking about. With respect to Christians in the church, the church has often had a very rigid, you should be better by now kind of posture. If that's not explicitly communicated, it is implicitly communicated. You're struggling with depression? What's wrong with you? Don't you trust Christ? We're Christians here. We don't struggle like that anymore. I'm not saying every church is this way, but many sadly are. The assumption is that you should have it whipped by now if you've been following Christ for any season of time. And then with respect to helping depressed people, I fear that the church has often advocated to use a, a sort of clinical term has advocated this kind of process of cognitive behaviorism, this kind of thing where the idea is that if people could just recalibrate their thinking according to the Bible, if we could just recalibrate our thinking according to the Bible, then people would no longer be depressed. That's what's communicated. Of course we want to recalibrate our thinking according to the Bible, absolutely. But the conclusion of the matter is the problem. If you would just recalibrate your mind and think after scripture, you would not be depressed anymore. The irony in all of this, in my own reflection, and you can, can judge what I'm saying and, and, and engage with me about this. In the 1970s and the 1980s, the church began to respond to the kind of secular psychological therapeutic model that existed right, in, in psychology and in, in therapy in particular that therapeutic piece, the church was responding to that and looked at that and said, you know what, we can match that and just do it better 
by applying biblical principle and biblical perspective. And so out of that, I'm not saying in every circle, but out of that in many churches and in many circles that we would run in, there came out of it this basically this Christian form of therapy, right, where we use the Bible in this methodology kind of like a handbook for mental and spiritual and emotional health. And so that's where you get this kind of, you're going to hear me use this phrase a lot, and I think it's just accurate in describing what's often gone on in the church in our era. You'll get this kind of, take these three verses and call me in the morning approach, right? You get this very, just kind of flattened thing, read these verses, take them home, pray on them, meditate on them, and when we meet for coffee next week, if you're not completely over it, I'm sure you'll be doing much better. That kind of mentality has permeated the church. And to be clear, I don't want to be misunderstood by anybody. Of course, we believe the Bible is completely sufficient to deal with every matter of faith and practice. And in fact, it is the only thing that is sufficient to speak to suffering people. The only thing. So what I'm saying is not, don't take people to the Bible. What I'm saying is when we take people to the Bible, we need to reveal to them what the Bible is all about. And what is that? The Bible reveals the utter faithfulness of God. The Bible reveals the faithfulness of God. And when we point people to that over and over and over again, we're on the right track. And even then, we have to realize this, though, friends. When we point people to the Scripture, when we take them to the Scripture in the midst of their suffering, we need to realize that it is going to be a lifelong battle. It's not just going to be better tomorrow. Certainly not in most cases. It won't be. It will be a lifelong battle of faith and trusting the Lord and prayer and searching the Scripture and living life in a community of Christians. That's what it will be. And so we need to be realistic and compassionate and gracious in our approach. The testimony, after all, of the Bible is that, yes, we've been redeemed, we've been justified, we've been freed from the burden of the guilt of our sin. Praise the Lord. But then there still is this burden that we carry called indwelling sin that we will carry from now until we die or Christ returns. And so the testimony of Scripture is that God will ultimately deliver us from all of that And the testimony of Scripture is that He is completely faithful to us as we walk in that. So that's what we want to do when we go to the Bible, is point people to the faithfulness and the character of God more than anything else. And we'll think more about this in just a moment. And I know anxiety sermon is next week, but it's kind of like what I'm I'm talking about, friends, is the kind of approach that would do this. Like where you you have a brother or sister in the faith come to you and say, man, I'm just anxious all the time. You know, I'm struggling, I'm nervous, I'm... Like, usually it's burdened, and I don't know why I can't sleep, not, not eating well, whatever. And, and then you look at them and you say, well, you know, friend, the Bible says, Jesus says, be anxious for nothing. And just go and, and meditate on that, and I trust it will be better. That's what I'm talking about. We don't want to do that. We want to point people to the utter faithfulness of God in their struggle, and then trust that the Holy Spirit will do good work through that. Just another thought, really quickly, as far as the church is concerned. I fear as well that there has been poor thinking in the evangelical church on growth and sanctification and victory over depression. Because often there is this wrong emphasis on the quote-unquote victorious Christian life, whereby the only conclusion to the depression conversation is that, friend, we're going to get you out of this, and you're going to be over it, and you're not going to be depressed anymore. That's the only appropriate end of this whole scenario in most Christian minds, is deliverance. Like, you just don't struggle anymore. And friend, that may be what's happened for you. That may happen in some cases because God does that. 
God is merciful. But for us to expect that to be normative, I fear, is actually heaping bondage upon many struggling and weary Christians. It's important that we think biblically about what victory over depression would look like. Or victory in depression is a better way to say it. Victory is not, hear me say this, victory is not uninterrupted happiness and joy. No way. Not this side of heaven. It's never been one single fallen human's experience. And victory is not never being depressed again. Rarely is it that. It is not never being depressed again. Most often, I would suggest, most often, growth and sanctification in depression, it looks like this. An increased awareness of depression, an increased awareness of how I sinfully respond when depression comes on. And then, over time, a positive, healthy, God-word change in how I respond. It's not that I don't ever get depressed anymore. It's that I respond differently to it. When it comes upon me, that is most often what growth and sanctification and victory look like in our fallen human experience. Victory, I mean, hear me say this too. Victory may very well be, and I honestly, when, I, when I'm about to say this, it's what else could victory really be? I mean, this is a, a great thought to think. Victory may very well be the consistent taking of your depression to Jesus And placing your hope and your trust in him in the midst of your deepest depression. That's victory. Taking over and over again your depression to Christ. Placing your hope, your trust, your confidence in him in the midst of your deepest and darkest depression. That is victory as far as this conversation is concerned. That is what people do who know the Lord and who trust God. We trust him through the darkness and he holds on to us and he never lets us go. Point number four for our consideration. I'm trying to keep us moving here. I was afraid this was going to be like a 70 minute sermon and I didn't want to do that to you. Point number four for our consideration, I'm I'm calling hope in the darkness. Hope in the darkness. So this is the question here, like what does the Bible say? What does the Bible offer? When it comes to this topic, I have a few sub points here, so just track with me. Sub point one hope in the darkness is this God's people have been depressed. God's people have been depressed. You're like, how in the world is that hope? No, friend, I'm trying to give you hope, give me hope that you are not alone. You are not alone when it comes to history and when it comes to God's people. We're not just, we're not talking about people who didn't know the Lord. We're talking about people who knew God and were depressed. The scripture is replete. I mean, when we were thinking about what scripture could we read for this sermon, or you know, for this service in light of this sermon text, we were basically like, you could just take your Bible, let it fall open, and pick something. Because there is depression and despairing of spirit all through this book. I'm just going to give you a, a smattering of some poignant passages that illustrate quite... Powerfully, I think that God's people have in fact been depressed. Psalm 77, selected verses. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open and I am so troubled that I cannot speak. It's in the Bible. 
Does it sound familiar? It does to me. Psalm 88. My soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, and like those you remember no more. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. It's God's word. Ecclesiastes 2, selected verses. Solomon writes, So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. All man's days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. 2 Corinthians 1, we already looked at it earlier. The Apostle Paul, wonderful man of God, had a tough life, trusted the Lord through it, wrote, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. This is the same man who was right about the thorn in the flesh that had been sent to torment him. And he had asked the Lord, pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away, and the Lord said no. He said that I will not take it away. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Right? This is that same Apostle Paul who knew what it was like to suffer, but sometimes suffered so tremendously that in spite of, or even in trusting the Lord, he despaired of life itself. You can't help, I'll probably go back to this more, I don't have this one written down for this week, I'll probably go back to it more next week, but you can't help but think of, of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. He flees from Jezebel because he's afraid, but then he is anxiety and depression are so inextricably linked sometimes. He flees, runs away, and he finds himself under a, a broom tree, as the scripture says, and he is asking the Lord to kill him. He is so warped out of his frame that he would rather die than go on living. Elijah, the great prophet. Job 17. Many in the room will be familiar with the story of Job. He had gone through a lot circumstantially. And then you read most of that circumstantial stuff in the first two chapters. God is sovereign in all of it. Satan is active in all of it. That's true. But then we have, we don't just want to skip from Job 2 to like Job 38. We don't want to do that. Because there's a reason why the Holy Spirit inspired 30 some odd chapters of wrestling. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Job says this in chapter 17. When I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint. So maybe I can just go to sleep. And escape this. When I say that, my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint. Then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. So that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. It's real. If I could just sleep to escape this pain, that would be awesome. But even when I sleep, I... I have dreams and visions that terrify me. And I would rather be strangled. I would rather die than go on living as I am. These are the testimonies of godly people. People whom the Lord had chosen. People whom the Lord loved. We'll think more in a moment, but don't think for one second that if you struggle with depression, that you are not God's child. To struggle with depression does not mean for one moment that you are not his. 
But the second sub-point that I, that I want us to consider in this consideration number four, point number four, hope in the darkness, is that Jesus himself was a man of sorrows. Jesus himself was a man of sorrows. This is comforting that the God-man, the sinless one, our great high priest, knew what it was like to experience darkness of soul. There are a number of places we could go, but probably none more powerful than the Garden of Gethsemane. It's an incredible scene. Jesus is in anguish. It's the night before he'll die. He knows what's coming. And in Mark's account are these words. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, this is the Lord Jesus talking. The God-man, the sinless one, the righteous one. He said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And after going a little farther, he fell on the ground. He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And this is where Luke and other gospel writers tell us that he was in such agony that his sweat became like drops of blood. Whether that literally meant blood was coming out of his pores, that's biologically possible, or whether that was a metaphorical expression for anguish, it really doesn't matter. He is warped out of his frame and is suffering. And then he cries out, Abba, Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus knew what it was like to suffer anguish and agony. So when you struggle and I struggle, take heart in that. Take comfort in that, that Jesus experientially knows your troubles. Next sub-point of hope in the darkness is, frankly, hope in Jesus. And by this I just mean the gospel, the good news. So I would be utterly remiss, as would any Christian preacher, to address a topic like depression and not hold out the hope of the universe, Jesus his life, his death, his resurrection in the place of sinners so that we might be reconciled to God, so that our sorrows might be done forever one day and that we might dwell with the Lord. No more sorrow and no more pain. So Christ not only knew what it was like to suffer, he not only experienced suffering in his physical human existence, his spiritual, mental, emotional human existence, not only did he experience that, but he, unlike anyone else, took upon himself all of our griefs and all of our sorrows. The prophet Isaiah writes that, that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and he was crushed for those, for our iniquities. But he took them with him to Calvary and conquered them in our place. So the thing that, that I want to hold out to you as a struggling sufferer, as a sufferer of depression or of any other thing, frankly, is that there is hope and there is a righteousness that is not yours in and of yourself, but there is a righteousness that can be yours through faith in Jesus Christ. And you may be thinking, all right, well, how does, this, how does this really immediately help me? How does this matter for me in the midst of depression? Well, one, of course, it gives you the hope of heaven. That you would one day be finally delivered from all of this through faith in Christ. There's that, which we could preach sermons on that alone. But then there is also this reality that in your struggle, if you are a person who has trusted Christ and you are trusting him through the mess, you can be assured that you are good with God. You can be assured that God is favorable to you. You can be assured that your standing before him is never grounded in your victory over depression. 
You can be struggling as the day is long and be justified and be righteous. If that, if that is not hope given, hope filling, I want to check for a pulse, right? Because I, I'm like, man, if I am struggling and I'm weary and I'm feeling so dark in my spirit, in my heart, in my soul, the tendency then is to despair of everything. The tendency then is to despair that even God himself has turned his back on me. That even God himself is through with me. That God could never be pleased with me. How in the world will I ever make it to heaven? That's what we think. Even the promises of God, we hear them and we're, we kind of, like, yeah, it's just, it's a pipe dream, man. It's what we think. There's no, but that applies to other people, but not to me. That's what we do. So then, what wonderful news it is that the scripture teaches that completely by faith, apart from your works, apart from your obedience, apart from your victory over anything, including depression, you are counted righteous by trusting in Christ alone. There is nothing more important for the struggle than that reality. Our struggles with depression, I said this for a moment ago, do not mean for one second that Christ is not ours. That's the lie that we can so easily buy into because we bought into this notion of like this rigid thinking about progressive sanctification. That if I'm really a Christian, I should not struggle with A, B, or C anymore. Now, there should be growth. Nobody's going to argue with that. There should be maturation. Nobody's going to argue with that. Your life should look different than it did when you, when you weren't a believer, right? But to think, to think that, man, I'm depressed and therefore I'm not, I'm not Christ's and Christ is not mine. It's not a biblical notion at all. And that's comforting. We are always, we say this, we've been saying this a ton lately. And thinking, especially like faith alone and some of these other things in the end of Luke's gospel with the crucifixion and the resurrection and the work of Christ in a place. We are always, and by always, I mean always, good day, bad day, and every day in between, always looking outside ourselves to Christ for hope, for joy, and for the ground of our standing before God. We are never looking in here. I'm not saying... Don't examine, I mean, the Bible says examine yourselves to determine whether you're in the faith. I'm not trying to contradict that notion. All I'm saying is that our ground, the standing that we have before God, is always in Christ. It is always in His righteousness, His faithfulness, not yours. We are saved by faith, not by faithfulness, right? That matters for us as we struggle and as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The final sub-point that I have under this big point number four, hope in the darkness, sub-point four, is I want us to consider for a moment the promises and the faithfulness of God. The promises and the faithfulness of God. So we've already thought about the greatest promise, that there can be an end to our alienation, that we can be reconciled to God, counted righteous, get him forever. But even maybe more particularly than that, and even maybe more on the ground than that, the Bible is full of hope for sufferers. We know from the scripture that God ordains the darkness in our lives. God means for these seasons to come. Nothing happens to us outside of the good and sovereign providence of our good and sovereign God. It's Bible. And so what we can remember is that God means to accomplish good purposes in our lives through darkness. 
So God is at least, to think about it, I mean, think along with the Apostle Paul, right, in 2 Corinthians 12, which I mentioned earlier. God is at a minimum when you're going through dark depression. He is showing you your own weakness. He is showing you that he, unlike you, is strong. He is showing you, teaching you your powerlessness to change your own mind and your powerlessness to change your own heart. Only he can do that work. So that's why when we talk about sanctification, apply the means that the Lord has given and don't for one second think that you're doing it. The Holy Spirit of God does it. And God teaches us through our depression that only he can change our heart and that he is faithful to display his strength in our weakness. He's teaching us that at least. The Lord promises us, not only does the Lord Jesus say this, in the Great Commission when he's sending out his disciples to go make other disciples. But the Old Covenant is replete with this language, the Psalms and other places, that God will never leave us or forsake us in the darkness, ever. So darkness does not equal God has left me. God has never left you. God is there if you are his. We may not see it. We may not feel it. doesn't matter. He's there. That's a promise from Scripture. God, as well, is compassionate. He knows our suffering. Not only does Jesus know it perfectly, but God knows our suffering. Psalm 56, verse 8, is an incredibly sweet text where it tells us that God, he keeps our tears in a bottle. He knows our tears. He knows our tossing and our turning in our beds. That's what that psalm says. He knows. He's not sitting up there in the heavens just kind of like, oh, you know, just kind of scoffing at the idea of you struggling. He loves you and is compassionate towards you. He is near to the brokenhearted. And we will certainly think more about this verse next week. But 1 Peter 5, 7, wonderful verse. Cast your anxieties and your fears upon him because he cares for you. Right? He cares for you. Because again, in our depression, we are so prone to think that God doesn't give a rip about me. And then, of course, we have the promise that he will finally deliver us from sin and from Satan and from death. And then in Revelation 21, that he will wipe away every tear from every eye. All of the tears that we had cried will be wiped away and sorrow and pain will be no more. So, friend, the the point of the matter in all of this is that God is utterly faithful and utterly trustworthy in the midst of deep sorrow and deep depression. Not apart from it, but in it. And here's maybe the sweetest thing about these promises. Because if you're really depressed and you hear these promises, again, your tendency is to think, it sounds great, but I don't feel anything about that. Sounds wonderful, but I don't even know if I believe that. Sounds too good to be true. Probably applies to other people, but I'm going to be the exception. That's how we feel. One of the sweetest things about the promises of God is that the effectiveness of those promises that I've just been reading and considering for us, they do not depend on your ability or my ability to feel them. They do not depend on your ability or my ability to even see them when we're depressed. They are there always because God is there always. And this little book, I'm going to hold it up again. Excellent book. I'm going to read you a quote from there about this very thing, that the effectiveness of the promises of God 
do not depend on our ability to feel them or even see them. Book says this. This is Zach writing, and then he'll quote Charles Spurgeon. The promise itself, and the one who made it secure, its anchor. So the one who made it secures its anchor. Even though at times we ourselves seem abandoned to the waves and tossed helplessly in our boats. Because of God and his promise, realistic hope endures almost in secret, sometimes beneath the surfaces of our changing moods and miseries. Charles looks for this hope within a person despite their troubles. He points to this secret hope in comparison to whether or not one looks like a moral achiever on a given day. Spurgeon says this, The secret hope of a man is a truer test of his condition before God than the acts of any one day or even the public devotions of a year. A story larger and truer than our moods or miseries holds us. We are more than the trials, feelings, or choices of a moment might suggest about us. Friend, that's a wonderful truth. I love that language of the promises and realistic hope endures almost in secret under the surface because we don't see it. We don't feel it. It's there, though, because God is faithful. So that, that is realistic hope in the darkness, and that's what we want to be pointing one another to. Two more points for our consideration that will be briefer. So point number five for our consideration is what I'm calling helps for depression. Helps for depression. So first two, really quickly, search the word of God. We've been thinking about that. We've been doing some of that. Search the scripture for these big, massive truths. Not this kind of like, again, not this handbook approach, but like massive truths that can undergird you in the midst of suffering. Secondly, lean into the people of God. Lean into the local church. Openly and honestly walk with your brothers and sisters. Now, disclosure, point number six is a word to the church, a word to caregivers. Because oftentimes, sad that this is true, the last place many of us would ever want to be open about our depression is the church. That should not be the case. We're going to think about just a word to CBC at the end. But for the struggler, lean into the people of God. You desperately need the Word of God, the people of God, the Spirit of God. We talk like that all the time in this church. It shouldn't surprise you. But now I want to talk about some more even practical, like immediately practical things. Things that might feel earthbound in ways that might make some uncomfortable. One thing I want to talk about briefly that could help you in your depression is medication. Now, I'm not just talking about antidepressant medication. That's a large conversation for another time. I'm also, I just want to be very clear, none of the elders of this church have any issue with people taking medication. We would say that, you know, it's never ideal to be on it forever. But we do not think that it is just categorically wrong for people to take medication to help with depression. But I'm also talking about other medical problems, right? Like other physical, biological issues that can result in depression, like an underactive thyroid, for example. Have you had your thyroid checked? Are your hormone levels as a result of your thyroid, are they, are they right? Do you have an autoimmune disorder? Do you struggle from chronic pain? You know, that's depressing you. I mean, these are things that we should talk about realistically because we were made, the, the theological term, psychosomatic union, right? There's a union between our, the material and immaterial part of us. So our mind, our heart, spirit, that and our body, they're union. There's a union. They're unified, I should say. And so it shouldn't shock us that physical things affect mental and emotional health. Just saying, go, go talk to your doctor. Maybe you've got really high blood pressure and you're feeling terrible as a result of that. And maybe medicine for that would help you. Some other things to consider. Helps for depression. Sleep. Are you sleeping? Are you sleeping well? Are you getting in the bed on time? Are you staying up till 3 in the morning? And then getting up to go to work? You know, I don't care what you're doing. It's just like, you need to sleep. So do I. We're not God. 
We need rest. It's part of the reason that, I mean, it's part of being fallen, but it's like, man, I'm, t- I'm tired. I wear out physically. Are you getting enough sleep? So that's a good question to ask somebody. How are you eating? What's your diet? If you're never sleeping and you're eating trash all the time, you're probably not going to be doing well mentally and emotionally, spiritually. I mean, we need to think in these terms. Exercise, right? Are you getting physical activity? Are you ever outside? I mean, we were made to be living in a world that's got sun. We absorb vitamins from it. I mean, we need to think in these terms. Have I gotten my heart rate up in the last month, you know, from physical exertion? Or has it all been over anxiety, right? Or am I exercising? And then also, we, I know we all have busy lives. There's more to do than time to do it. But the principle of Sabbath rest is biblical. We're not strict Sabbatarians in this church. We leave that up to your unconscious by and large. But the principle of rest is God-honoring. You, again, are not God. You could work literally every hour of every week, all 168, and you will only accomplish what the Lord ordains for you. Not saying be lazy. I'm just saying work and sleep and trust God. So in your life, build in rest. Build in time away. Take a day off here and there. Say no to a great opportunity. Man, I'd love, you know, it sounds fun to go do this or that, but you know, we're exhausted. And it's probably good that we get some rest. It might be good that we, you know, do the Netflix and ice cream thing tonight. It might be good. Just a thought. Build in time for rest. Of course, we can be selfish and go overboard, but it's a biblical principle. Other things that the Lord has given us that can be helpful. Good food and good drink. My goodness. I mean, it's pleasurable. It's a kindness of God. There are nice sensations and things that we experience. I mean, when you eat good food, when you drink good drink, it's satisfying in a way that can lift you emotionally, that can lift you mentally. You couple a nice meal with great conversation around the table, and man, you can leave that feeling completely different than when you sat down. Just things to think about. And then finally, laughter. When's the last time that you sat around with dear friends and just laughed? Cut up and joked about nothing in particular. But laughing does something to you. You know, even chemically. I mean, it's in, in hormonally. It does something for us. It should not surprise us at all that these things are true. It just speaks to the way that God has made us so marvelous. You know, that these things would affect our minds and our hearts. So that was point number five. Helps. Practical helps. We'll probably come back again to some of these with anxiety and other things. So apply yourselves in those areas, and I think that it can help us. And then finally, point number six, I've entitled it A Word to Caregivers. A Word to Caregivers, or I would just even say A Word to CBC. So now I'm specifically talking to people that would not understand themselves to be strugglers or strugglers with depression and are going to want to rally around those who are struggling in this way. A word to you. We need to remember as caregivers that there's always an explanation we're not expecting, right? What I mean is we don't know where people have been or what they've suffered. We don't know what's led to these sorts of things in their lives, right? Compassion allows for that unexpected explanation. Compassion allows for or makes room for them to tell you what's going on with them before you make assumptions about why they're struggling as they are. Mercy does not assume that people are depressed because they've chosen to be, right? Depression, hear me say these things. Depression is not always caused directly by sin. And what I mean by that is sin committed by the individual. This is just Bible 101. 
Sometimes we bear consequences in this life that are a direct result of a particular sin. And sometimes, oftentimes, that's not the case. Jesus makes that very clear in Luke 13 and in John chapter 9 primarily. It is not necessarily because there is some unrepentant sin in that person's life, then therefore they're depressed. And also, I would say this, that depression itself, the onset of depression, spiritual, emotional, mental darkness in and of itself, I don't think we should understand to be sin. There can be and often are sinful responses to that onset. No argument. But to simply be depressed of spirit is not sin. It's just like we'll talk about, you know, it's not sin to be tempted, right? It's not sin that you are tempted to do something. It's sin when you act upon the temptation. That's how I would equate this. That when the darkness comes upon you, Romans 7, right? When it, this thing comes upon you, that in and of itself is not the sin. The sin is in the response. The sin is in the processing or lack thereof. And how we live coming out of or how we live with the depression. And sufferers, friends, as we think about this as a local church, sufferers were never meant to get over or get through depression by themselves. Galatians 6.2, we love that verse. Bear one another's burdens and sorrows. We need to be about the business of doing that. That's the ministry of the local church. That we would rally around suffering people and we would do it with compassion and love and grace and charity and patience. And as I just mentioned a minute ago, sufferers should find joy and they should find relief and comfort in the local church. And it's sad that they often don't. I pray, I pray that that's not true here. I pray that we have a culture here where sufferers can find comfort and can find relief and joy and compassion. In many local church contexts, I think the reason that people struggle to be open is that they've been made to feel that they can only find acceptance once they have overcome a struggle. But if they're continuing to struggle, if they haven't gotten victory over it, they fear they will not be accepted. I pray that's never true of CBC. I pray that we are a congregation that constantly remembers and lives as though we are all fellow strugglers. We are all fellow wrestlers. Whether it's depression or some other thing. And therefore we can live with grace and charity amongst each other. So when we minister to sufferers, friends, we need to not only have compassion and sympathy as fellow strugglers, but as I've talked about, we need patience. So if you start to minister to somebody and you think that this should be resolved in a day or a week or a month, you're a fool. You are a fool. And you will be frustrated over and over and over again. And you will throw your hands up over and over again and say, I'm done with this mess. I can't keep doing this. But if you go into a situation where you're ready to dig into the complex real messy issues that exist in people's lives and you're ready to really engage rather than just simply making them feel like the problem is with them that they haven't been able to fix it by now then I think we are on the right track we want to be able to engage with people to help them understand who they are sin, you're a sinner help them understand what they've done in life that may have contributed to what they're struggling with Friend, you're, no wonder you're depressed. I mean, look at the things that have gone on in your life. Let's think in those terms. Things that have happened to them. Help them to think well about themselves and about God and about His faithfulness. And more than anything, point them to Christ. And I pray that this is our posture in this church. I'm, I'm landing the plane. In this church, if I 
and you just you know, kind of think this along with me. If I'm sitting down across the table from a member of this church who I know, I trust with all my heart, I think this, this brother or this sister is a, is a Christian. This person is a believer in the Lord Jesus. And they are telling me, maybe through tears, about depression. I'm not, in that moment, I'm not going to quote Bible. In that moment, I'm not even going to call them to repentance. In that moment, I'm going to get up, I'm going to walk around the table, I'm going to hug them. Because sometimes that's what people need. They need somebody who will mourn with them. And who will just say, you know, brother, sister, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you are struggling this way. I, I'm a struggler too. And we can mourn together. And then there will be a time when we can go to the Word of God. There will be a time when we can talk about repentance. But in those moments, something else is often needed first. And it's frankly compassion. So let's be a church that is compassionate in the ways that we deal with those who struggle with depression. And I leave us with just some good words to give to suffering people. Again, as a caregiver. You can remind them, friend, brother, sister, I love you. And I'm with you in this. I'm committed to you in this. I'm, I'm going to walk with you in this. But more than that, God loves you. And more than that, God is infinitely faithful to you. And you need to rest. So if there's going to be anything it's, you, want to, you want to rest in, God's goodness towards you, rest in God's faithfulness towards you in the midst of this depression. And then you can trust, friend, you can take it to the bank that you will never be put to shame. Those are good words. Those are compassionate words. And I pray those are the kinds of words that we speak to one another. Let's go to the Lord and pray and ask Him for His help for the church, but also for those who struggle and suffer from depression. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the time that you've given us to consider this topic. Lord, there are so many things that could have been said. There were a lot of things that were said. We trust that you would use this message in the minds and the hearts of everyone who's heard it. We pray it would bear good fruit as we think about these things. Father, we pray for our church that you would make CBC a place that loves and exalts Christ above all things and that points sufferers to Jesus as the first thing we ever do. And we pray that we would be a church that is full of compassion, that is full of love and grace and charity and mercy towards one another, and that we would be patient to walk with one another through depression and every kind of sin. And we pray for those in our midst this morning who are depressed. We pray for those who are prone to suffer from depression. And we do pray, God, that by your Spirit, you would deliver them. And we pray that through their sorrow and through their darkness, you would Remind them that you're there, that you're faithful, that you've never left them. We pray that they would feel your presence with them in their suffering. And we pray that you, by your spirit, would continue to cause them to look outside themselves and to look to Christ, who is the author and perfecter of their faith, who is faithful to complete the good work he's begun in them, and who will never let them go. We pray for your help in all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.